Well, good morning. morning. Kind of want to bring that trumpet guy back out for the, uh, the sermon. Give a, give a nice little blast on every point here. Would be appropriate because we're continuing in this series in the book of Exodus. Deliver us. And Exodus is the story of God, his greatness and his glory to deliver his people, to bind up the brokenhearted, to have mercy on people just like us uh, who are in need, who are enslaved, who are in chains, and the Lord will do it. So Exodus is for us as much as it was for the people of Israel of old. And the book is really broken down in two parts. The first half is the deliverance of God, and the second half is God coming to dwell with his people. And you may notice this is kind of an outline for the normal Christian life. God saves us from our sin by his grace, brings us into this new family, clothes us in his righteousness, and says, now that you don't have to, but you want to, walk with me, follow me, trust me, obey I love you. I really love you. I want what's best for you. I want to transform you into the image of Christ. I want to bring you back to the realities of the garden. I want to send you out of this beautiful building into Santa Fe so that you can be a part of the recreation and redemption of this place that I so dearly love. In our text, we find the second half of Moses' call to do just that, to go to Israel and declare freedom to the captives, and perhaps even more daunting, to tell Pharaoh, the king of kings in that day, let my people go. Second part of the text, because this began last week in Exodus chapter 3, this narrative about God calling Moses, Moses. You're a called man. You're a marked man. I have a purpose for you. Sound familiar to all of you? It should. And where I'm calling you, I will provide for you. Where I am leading you, I will not abandon you. So trust me. Would you trust me? For your joy and so that others might hear good news, would you trust me and go? So simple. And yet, as our text shows us, Moses, God bless him. Or as some of y'all say, bless his heart. (laughs) Moses is a struggling with this call and this trust. I wonder about us. I wonder about you. Have you ever struggled with what God is calling you to? Maybe where God is calling you? Have you struggled to follow? Have you struggled to lead? Have you struggled to obey, to go, to trust that God really has you, right? It's not just Sunday and dress up, we put on our costumes and come to church, but really he knows you by name and loves you and has you in whatever he might call you into, whatever challenges you may face. Ever struggled with that? Same here. As you know, about two weeks ago, I was at a little retreat with some pastor friends, been in the same group of guys for the last five years. We gather once a year for a week to pray and to encourage each other. We talk church and life and leadership, but really the nature of this time together, and by the way, I don't love this, it's not easy, is to get together with other brothers and say, how are you really doing? 
Like, how are you really doing? A couple years in the past, scandalously, we actually had our wives write in letters that we didn't get to read beforehand (laughs) so that we couldn't avoid the answer to the question, how are you really doing? It's time to be honest and real and vulnerable and get help because we all need help. We need a band of brothers. We need each other. And at the retreat, I decided to take a bunch of notes. I wrote them down in this fancy red book. All my secrets are in here. So I'm just going to leave this up here for now. All right. I wonder if you have a book like that, a place where you can talk so honestly with yourself and with God, where you can disclose your fears, your doubts, your insecurities, your worries. We all have them. At the retreat, we did a great exercise, which is equally glorious and painful. Call it the one in four. So you get one minute You get one minute, guys, to give your elevator pitch. I'm Greg. I'm from New Mexico. My parents go to this church. They're awesome. I've got two daughters. My wife's Caitlin. She's a musician, etc. One minute to give the elevator pitch. The next four minutes are designed to peel back the onion, as it were. And so you're required in this exercise to start every sentence with these words. And some of you, this is literally, this is your version of hell. But what I didn't tell you was, ooh, you know, here's, here's the outside. Here's what everybody sees. Here's the cleaned up piece. But what I didn't tell you was, we all wrestle. We all need God to help us deal with our doubts. And for those who are here this morning and you're, you're Christians, you're, you're not wrestling under the, the fear of God's wrath. You're wrestling as those who are believing. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to have it all together, because that would make you the Christ. And you're not the Christ. And Moses is here too. Can you imagine the audacity of this character, Moses? His 80 years on this planet, and all the stuff from his life that he undoubtedly carries with him. Regret, fear, failure, shame, This is the guy who had just seen the burning bush. You know, the fire that didn't consume the bush? He's he's just seen a picture of the power and the nature and the character of God. But not just that, as if he were left open to interpretation. God himself has spoken to Moses. He's heard God's voice. He's been in the presence of God. He's heard the promises of God. And he's heard the plan of God, that he would go and plunder the Egyptians. And yet... Oh, don't you love the Bible? Don't you love that the Bible doesn't just say, now try harder. And, you know, forget yourself. And let let who you are become nothing into the abstract reality of the crystal sphere. Don't you just love that there's, or, or, you know what, actually the Bible is just a bunch of moral guys. Be like them. Don't be like David and Moses and the rest. Cling to Jesus. I mean, He's just seen all of this, and yet objections still flow. I mean, this is the Apostle Peter level stuff. You know, denying the Lord three times. I mean, as a reader of the text, you're left to wonder, Moses, honestly, brother, like what more do you need? And so the text shocks us. It's also meant to convict us. 
because so often we are just like Moses. So we're meant to see the plank in our own eye before we get too high on our horse. Oh, Moses, I can't believe your fears and your doubts and your misplaced desires. How could you? God's right there. We have the Holy Spirit working through the word of God, and yet what do we do? We run, we fear, we complain. We struggle to follow the Lord where he's called us. We hear his calling, but out of fear, we pretend it's not him, or out of pride, we just say, I don't want to do it. This is us. This is us. You're not Moses, okay? You're not being called to walk up to Chimayo with a megahorn, screaming, let my people go. Please don't. I do love a robust jail ministry, but let's try to stay away from that. And yet God has a calling on your life. If you're a Christian, God has purpose for you to know him and to make him known. And a purpose to lead, to be a servant leader after the work of Christ in your home, with your children, with your grandchildren, with your spouse, perhaps at work where it's very difficult to be a servant leader. You may have a Pharaoh-type boss. We all struggle to trust the one who calls is the one who can. Moses had reason to be afraid. So do we. But I don't want to skirt past that too quickly. It's been 40 years in the desert. Perhaps he's forgotten a little Egyptian. Perhaps he just looks at himself in the mirror and goes, there's no way. And he wouldn't be wrong for thinking that because this is Egypt. For crying out loud, this is Egypt. They are the greatest world superpower of the day. Moses, as we heard last week, is an octogenarian shepherd with a stick. This would be like if you went to modern-day Israel and rounded up that merry band of still-existent Bedouins, the shepherds who still do their shepherding, and brought them face-to-face with the full might of the U.S. military. That's the stupidity of the picture that we're dealing with here. That's the impossibility of it. And so Moses is right to be afraid. But if the Bedouins have God on their side, then no amount of military might can stand a chance. Still, there's reason to be afraid. Moses is human. We're human too, and perhaps you have a healthy skepticism of what is called. Perhaps you tried before and it failed, or you feel like it failed. Perhaps you thought you heard the voice of the Lord, but actually it was a false teacher, and you listened, and you got burned. Maybe you've had hopes and dreams that never came true, but you genuinely thought that's what the Lord was leading. So what I'm saying is this fear of ours, it's not frivolous. God doesn't mock it. And yet it can't end there. In the finished work of Jesus Christ, we, his children, are indeed called to trust, obey, find joy in the Lord unto the life that God longs for us to have by grace through faith. That's scary. It's so much easier for me and you to live at least for a time, according to the things that we can taste and see and touch and feel like we can control, it's scary. But it's also glory. To walk with the Lord, to know he is with you, to know that he has you. There's no chains there. It's the freedom that we more deeply long for in our souls. So here's the main point of the text then. As it comes to dealing with our doubts, God is faithful. 
to make and keep his promises for his people through ordinary means just like you, me, and Moses. He is in the business of dealing with our doubts to make the called capable. Yahweh, I am that I am, is in the business of dealing with our doubts to make the called capable. And here he deals with us in three ways. First, the Lord deals with our fears. Uh, When we get to the beginning of our text, this is actually Moses' third objection. And this third objection has to do with what is external or extrinsic to Moses, his circumstances, the power and plight of Egypt. And he says to God, look, the people aren't going to listen. They're not going to believe me. They won't believe that you appeared to me. And in this context, he's not speaking about the Egyptians in particular, but the Israelites. I mean, what a fearful guy. He's not saying the Egyptians won't listen to me. He's saying, before I even get to the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the ones in chains, they won't listen. They're not going to believe that you appeared to me in this bush and the whole deal. They won't believe my words. It's fear of man. It's good to be someone with high emotional IQ and high empathy. Those are great traits. But as a fellow sufferer, I can just say that kind of the the dark side of that gift can often be fear of man. Worrying a little bit more what other people think and a little less about what God has already declared to be true. Will we trust what God has already said about us beyond the subjectivity of our feelings, the objectivity of his hand, not ours? So I love how God responds here. Not with an answer, not with a lecture, with a question. Moses, you're worried about them and what they're going to think and feel. That's all subjective and hypothetical. Let's deal with something concrete. What's in your hand? Objectively, what is in your hand? And you can just imagine Moses sheepishly looking at his stick. Now, it's a nice stick, don't get me wrong. I mean, an 80-year-old shepherd's going to have a nice staff. I'm sure it's got a sweet little patina on it and a little doobly-doo at the top. But folks... It's a stick. What's in your hand, the Lord asks. As if God is asking Moses, stop with the hypothetical, stop with the feelings, stop with the news cycle. Who am I? What can I do with a stick? I can do more with a stick than the entire Egyptian army can do with all of their armament, resources, time, and strategy. So the Lord gives Moses these three signs to prove himself, to prove that Moses will not be alone in his fears, to show Moses, it's not your hand, Moses. You don't have to have it all together for these folks. You don't need to fear them. I will have it together through you. Your hand will be an extension of my hand. That's why he says to throw the staff on the ground. I will do it through you. That's the place of your trust. Not whatever you sense about yourself, whether or not you can be persuasive enough for the stiff-necked people. And so he gives us three signs which basically cover the gamut of all the forces of our own fear in the world and the universe. The first sign where the rod turns to a snake is God reminding us that he has power over good and evil. 
He is the I am that I am. He is the source and the center of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you see that word snake in there, your, your mind should be drawn to what? Genesis, right? The first few chapters. And in the ancient Near East, it wasn't just a snake. I mean, we're talking about Leviathan here. The chaotic, primeval, you know, dragon king. That's what's being put on display. God is saying, I've got a stick. That stick can become everything that this world perceives as evil. Even Pharaoh wears one on his headdress. And I can control that thing before you can even blink an eye. It's all mine. Secondly, we see that God has control over life and death, not just good and evil. Moses puts his hand in his cloak. He takes it out. There's a skin disease. He puts it back in, takes it out. God restores, renews. I mean, we're fond of saying, right, the only two things that can ultimately thwart us are death and taxes. Not so with the Lord. Moses, I'm here to remind you that not only do I have good and evil under control, I have life and death under control. What can man do to you, Moses? To quote the psalmist, to let it ring true in your own soul where you have fear, about them, they, and the people. What can man do to you if the God of heaven and earth has control over life and death? God alone knows every hair on your head. For a few of you all, that ain't that hard. And he knows how many days you're going to live. He knows everything. It's in his hands. And lastly, that God is the God over all other gods. We'll get to this more when we deal with the plagues, but the Nile River in Egypt was considered to be literally a deity. And indeed, if there's any people being preached to who know the importance of water, is it not the Sanifeans? And water was everything for these people. And so they worshiped the river as if it were a god. So Moses says, all the false gods of the world... Why are they false? Because they say, come, give, I'm going to take, demand, demand, work harder, it's never enough, put your stuff up on the altar, it'll be consumed, bring more, you're never done, no rest, thank you. Those are the false gods. That's not good news. To that, God says, in an instant, I can turn what is life into blood. The point of this threefold sign story is Simply that God shows up for Moses. It would have been so easy for the Lord to go, you know what, thanks for the third objection. We're done here. Uh, You know, please get on your way and do what I've asked you to do before the burning bush gets a little too close to you on your way out. And instead the Lord says, here's three signs. He shows up for Moses. In the same way when we have fear, God shows up for us. God shows up for us. So that we can know that where he guides, he does provide. It's not going to leave you high and dry in your calling, where he's sending you with the purpose of your life. And by the way, if you're here and you're breathing and you're awake, which is 96% of you, he ain't done with you. You do have a calling and a purpose and a reason for being here in this place right now for his glory and your joy. We're so often fearful of others, and sadly, we go back to operating in our own strength. So it's good to ask. In fact, later as we come to the table, as your hands are held out to receive, it's good to ask, what is in your hand? 
Because with God, even a stick is sufficient for all the powers and principalities of the world. He deals with our fears, and he also deals with our doubts. Now comes the fourth objection. Moses comes back again. And remember that in the Old Testament, there were no verse numbers and chapter headings. All of these little but Moses, but Moses, but Moseses were meant to drive the narrative forward. This is the point where the little Hebrew children listening to this would have laughed out loud and been scolded by their moms and dads. Because you've got to be kidding me. A fourth objection? And I read this this week and I went, oh, thank you, Jesus. There's hope for us. There's hope for us. Interestingly, this time, it's not those people, them out there, will they listen? Ah, but we're peeling back the onion. We're doing the one in four. We finally got down to the what I didn't tell you was. Because this time, it's not my circumstances, but my own soul. This time, it's Moses' sense that he is not enough. This time, it's not fear of man, but self-doubt. I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. Lord, you know what? I can't do this. The problem isn't them this time. The problem is me. It's, it's my life. It's my baggage. Lord, remember my story. I mean, I was that miracle kid, right? Came down in the basket, rescued, but I screwed it all up. I screwed it all up. I had everything. And I tossed that Egyptian down. I ran away in fear. And I've been hiding for 40 years in the desert, just trying to forget about it. Just trying to deal with those condemning thoughts that come into my mind that scream, shame on you. Every time they come up, just distract myself with the work. I'm not enough. Not smart enough or rich enough. Slick enough. I'm deficient. Where do you see that in yourself? Where do you feel before God, if you were to honestly write it down in the red book, that you are not enough? And how does that shape what you do or don't do? How does it for you and for me shape our unwillingness to go where God is called? Because we ultimately trust in ourselves more than him. What's your excuse? Sadly, we find it far easier to fear and to have faith in the one who has never disappointed us. God responds again, this time not with a question, but with a shout. Exactly, Moses. I know you. I know your shame. I know your fear and your doubts. I know that you were the special miracle basket kid who, you know, screwed it all up and here you are in the desert. I know everything about you. Exactly. You can't do it, but I can. You know, folks, we live in a world where the dominant philosophy of life is this expressive individualism. It's all about me. And so, so many people come to church and they don't worship God. Instead, they have what we call moralistic therapeutic deism. God gives me rules, moralistic. It's all about me feeling better because what I feel is most true. Therapy. And then, yeah, I don't really know about, you know, God's not really personal, just random deism, abstraction, because it's too scary if he actually knew my name, because then there's obligation there. That's the world we live in. You want to know why things are falling apart? 
Some of you do. Some of you are grieving that. I'll tell you. Moralistic therapeutic deism is why. It's just another iteration. There's nothing new under the sun of people wanting to be their own gods and make themselves the center. God responds, Moses, you're not the center. You can't do it. I can. And with conviction, he reveals to Moses that his his self-doubt and his, you know, false humility is actually pride. His unwillingness to believe and walk in that belief is actually Moses' way of saying to God, oh Lord, I'm so humble, I can't do it. The, the, The pride in that is, Moses, you think you know more than I do. And that's why his anger is kindled. Now, when it says his anger is kindled, don't misread that as, you know, angry lightning bolt, old white man beard, silver surfer guy, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. God is present with Moses in this moment. His anger is kindled like a father who sees his kid about to run into the street. And it is right for a parent to have holy anger when their kid is about to run into the street and hurt themselves. This is why God responds with this, you know, hearkening back to the book of Job. You know, who made the mouth? Who made the skies? Who made the words and the silence and the creatures and all the things? Is it not I, says the Lord? Like a father jealous for his child's growth, God reminds Moses in this moment of something extremely important. Moses, you are full of self-doubt. You are full of fear and shame. You are full of reminders about your story that you think preclude you from the possibility of my story. So hear this, Moses. Hear this, church. You are not a mistake. You are not a mistake. All these years, all these ups and downs, everything fraught with failure, it was all to bring you, the octogenarian shepherd, to this point where I will make my power perfect through your weakness, where I will display my glory to the greatest might of the world through a shepherd with a stick. You're not a mistake. And God proves this to you and to me with our own stories. Because how many times have you been in the pit praying, God help, and then the Lord showed up to help you before you were even done? Right in the middle of the moment when you thought, it ain't gonna happen, forget it, can't do it, not me, you learn that the Lord already had the plan in the works. And so God says to Moses, remember Aaron, your brother? You didn't know, because you're not God, but I did because I am. He's already on the way, man. He's already on the way. My grace, my mercy, my provision, in the face of your unbelief, you don't deserve it. It's a free gift. It's already on the way. It's like the story of the prodigal son, right? He's walking back to his dad's house, whipping himself, beating himself up. You know, I'm gonna, I don't know, I guess I'll just be a slave in this guy's house. You know, maybe he'll take me back. It's better than eating the food of the pigsty. And while he's sitting there whipping himself, In his own self-justifying nature, the father is literally running out to him. Not just to forgive him as a slave. You see, look at this cross. The cross isn't just about you being forgiven of your sins. It is about Jesus Christ not only dying for your sins, but imputing his full righteousness to you. 
So you're like the son in the story. Not only forgiven, all right, I guess it'd be to be a slave in God's house. No, the royal robe is placed on him. The ring is on his finger. He is completely and fully restored. Help is already on the way. God wants to show off his glory in our lives. If what he does in us is beyond our own ability, then who gets the credit? God alone. And then what do we do? It's like going out to have a delicious meal that you didn't make. You go and talk about it. You share the experience with those around you who desperately need to hear some good news. In the end, Moses is left without excuse. But for a fifth and final time, I know, it's hard to believe, except you're you, and so you know. For a fifth and final time, Moses, without excuse, attempts to politely decline God's offer. Thank you to the holy HR department, but I'd rather not have this job. Okay, it's not them. They'll listen. I've got signs. It's not me. You'll meet me there. Okay, great. But uh, can I maybe just give this to someone else? In spite of all that God shows, Moses remains fearful. This is such good news. It is such good news for people like you and me who are going to leave this room and guess what? Have a great week and also struggle this week. Have confidence in Yahweh and what he says about you, that you are in his hand, and also fear and doubt and misplaced desires, not wanting the job. This is the sadness of sin, of trying to be the Christ in our own gods. It robs us. It's John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The sadness in the depths of sin is that it robs us of what God has for us in Christ. And yet God responds a third time. Not with a question. Not with a shout. But this time with the tender words of a Savior. You see, it is God, not Moses, who remains faithful. It is God, not Moses, who is patient. It is God, not Moses, who is able. It is God, not Moses, who deserves it, who is struck down at the cross and raised up in the resurrection. It is God, not Moses, who keeps the promises that he makes. It is God who is faithful. Paul tells the church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so like every single text in the Old Testament, even the super weird ones, we are led to the person and the work of Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua, our Savior. Jesus was called, and he was called to a cross, not to carry a stick, but to be raised and hung on one. And he obeyed. For the joy set before him. What was that joy? Not only the glory of his father, but you all, his children. For our sake, Jesus was the one who was consumed by the holy fire of God for our sin so that we might actually be saved from its consequences. Jesus is the helper for us who is already on the way. And Jesus is not merely, like the nation of Israel, a firstborn son, a metaphorical term of deep affection. No, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. 
his perfectly and eternally beloved, who he sent to show us, not signs with sticks, but the greatest sign of all, that Christ Jesus rose to conquer death and sin and Satan, all chains, fears, and doubts for you forever for our freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Exodus 4 and just this amazing book. What a joy to see Jesus in it. What a joy for all the poor and powerless, we sang in the prelude, to come and be met with such great mercy. Thank you, Lord, that when you open up our red books, when you hear our prayers, even through tears, what we didn't tell you was, your promises are not weakened, but strengthened to save a needy people to put your glory on display. You will never leave us or forsake us. So help us, Lord, wherever we are being called to trust you. I am that I am, that you will provide all that is needed. Thank you, Lord, that you are in the business of dealing with our doubts and in the courage of Christ, making us the called capable. Amen.